welcome Mike. Lots of good stuff. Hey, let's uh, just take a moment to pray with me, if you don't mind. God, even on this uh, gloomy, rainy Sunday morning, we pray that the sunlight of your Spirit would pierce our souls and would just shed light on um, ways that we can grow. And uh, my hope is that as we go through these next few moments, together that we can think deeply about how we can keep from defaulting to what can oftentimes turn a toxic Christianity and be more intentional. And so we need your spirit to help us with that. Please give us ears to hear, hearts to receive your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So recently I've been having... <clears throat> some conversations with the worship team about the songs that we sing here at the river. This is not the first time we've had this dialogue, but we certainly are in an, an intentional place right now with our conversations. And for those of you that don't know me or know the church well, I've actually been leading worship here almost two years now as we get into this summer. If we go back to those early days of being online only during the height of the pandemic. So it's, it's very odd to think that I've been... Uh, around the river for a couple of years now. I don't feel so new anymore, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to not be the newbie. Um, but through, the, through this time, I've really been kind of listening, keeping my ear to the rail, and just seeing how you respond, what songs mean the most to you, um, how you feel like music can best express our values here as a community. And what I share recently with the worship team is that I feel like we are turning a page and we're entering this time of new and creative expressions. And for me, it's really exciting. And I think the team is also excited as well. We're not really sure exactly what this will look like or what it will uh, sound like even. Uh, but there is this excitement moving forward. And I want to bring you into this conversation this morning because worship really is a collective. It's not an exclusive act only by those done on the platform that have instruments in hand. It really does belong to all of us. And I do want to make something clear. This is not necessarily a call for new song suggestions, so don't flood my inbox this week, even though that may be part of the process. But what I want to bring out this morning is the work of this worship collective, as I call it, begins by asking some really important questions, not just of myself, not just of the worship team, but also of all of us here at the river and some of these questions might be the following. What are the things that we value most as a community? What do we need to be saying about God to reflect our progressive leanings as an intellectual body that is concerned about the needs of the world, both neighbor and earth? What do we need to stop saying about God because such former ways of thinking have turned toxic in our time? How is it we should name God? What language will we borrow? Is God gendered? Can God be feminine? Are there some metaphors that are more harmful or carry more cultural baggage than others that we just need to be done with? How do we handle knowing and unknowing? 
spiritual intimacy, but also leaning into mystery and being okay with doubt. So these are some of the questions that have been just kind of running through my mind these weeks. But if there's one question that has been at the forefront of my mind recently, it is this, and this is what I want to camp out on this morning. What vision or version of Jesus, and therefore God, do we want to express? What vision of Jesus here at the river do we want to express to our community, to the world? Author, speaker, and spiritual guru, one of my heroes, Brian McLaren, says, our image of God transforms us. Like an image in a mirror, our God concept reflects back to us the image of what we aspire to become, powerful and vengeful, kind and merciful, dominating and in control, relational and respectful, like God, like believer, we might say. I like that. Our God concept reflects back to us the image that we aspire to become. And I believe McLaren is right. The vision that we have in mind and that we subscribe to is not neutral about God. It will transform us. It can be the image some need to baptize a colonizing mindset so that they can dominate and subjugate and eventually eliminate those that are in their path all in the name of their religion. We've seen that over and over again. But our vision of God can also form within us the values of the good life, defined by self-giving love and sacrifice. And this potential between these two, this choice that we must make, it should give us pause from time to time in order to ask some clarifying questions and this is the pause that I'm wanting to lead us in this morning. I see this as a way for us to recalibrate ourselves and realign our hearts toward the vision of Jesus that we find to be most life-giving and liberating for those around us and also for ourselves. Have you seen this image floating around social media lately? And before you see it on the screen, I want to issue a public warning the image you are about to see may cause intense nausea, and it could be trauma-inducing, so please be kind to yourself. But nonetheless, this image here, if we can get it on the screen. Now you can't unsee it. You're welcome. Lately, I've been seeing on my Twitter timeline what seems to be a new forthcoming Christian nationalist Bible. And whether or not this is true, I think, is yet to be seen. It could just be a Photoshop image for publicity's sake. We've seen this a lot. Uh, but some of the comments that I've been reading suggest that it would be co-released alongside Marjorie Taylor Greene's unannounced book on making a case for Christian nationalism. So, again, you're welcome for the scenes that are now before you. My intention is not to get into the politics of this today. And in fact, Maddie's group has recently been diving into the current political issues and how Christians should respond. So hopefully some of you have had a chance to kind of be in this conversation already. But seeing this lately has made me wonder just what could possibly hold up in this version of the New Testament if it really was to be published. I mean, wouldn't large sections of Jesus' words and key phrases and even whole passages have to be edited and redacted out altogether for this to make any sense at all? It makes me think of 
Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which I was able to see in person. I don't know if you did when the Museum of the Bible came on tour to Times Square some years ago. But his Bible was famous because he took a razor blade and he removed parts of the Gospels that he felt like didn't belong. So I did my own thought experiment this week, and I found uh, this to be very helpful to ask this question of myself. What portions of the story and sayings of Jesus would be the first to get cut out of the Christian Nationalist Bible? And I came up with top three that I want to share with you today. Of course, there are many, many others, but these are the three that are in my mind today. I want to encourage you to do this similar thought experiment. I think about how 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says to test everything and hold fast to what is good. So in this sort of backwards way, I feel that affirming a vision of Jesus which cannot coexist with hateful ideologies can affirm in us where we should be investing our spiritual capital. So here it goes. The first one that I had in mind, and probably my favorite part of the, the New Testament, is this story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. And you remember how the, the son goes off and pursues wild, erratic living, and when he gets to the end of his rope and his resources, he has to head back home ashamed, assuming that he's going to have to plead for his father's forgiveness. But when he comes near and he gets close, his father takes off to run and he meets him out on the road. You remember this? What does he do? He throws his arms around him. And this dad had every reason to demand answers and even punish this son. But in stark contrast, he showers the son with grace and with abundance. All of the inheritance now gone, it didn't matter. There was going to be a new inheritance, a new position at the center for this person. And make no mistake, this is an image of our God. The extravagance and the carelessness of the son's living is matched and even exceeded by a display of wild and risky grace and acceptance. It's a reminder to me, hopefully to you, of how God's extreme love will always be stronger than our stubborn resolve to keep telling ourselves that we're not worthy of it. Self-doubt creeps in living out on the outskirts of life, not quite fitting in with the agreed-upon normal in society, maybe life not going according to your parents' plans and desires for you, maybe not living up to your older sibling's standards. And God's love always meets us there. It never waits for us to get cleaned up first. And that's what we mean when we say that God pursues us like a father at full stride ready to welcome a child who's coming home and i keep in mind luke 15 to help keep me from sliding into what i call selective grace mentality from devolving into the mindset that there is a hierarchy when it comes to god's love and certain people are at the center of it and other people have to earn their worth to gain it Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. 
And I want to tell you this morning that you and I are in Christ. Christ has claimed us already. And so these days I keep the story in Luke 15 close to heart. A second passage I was thinking about this week uh, is from Mark 9. This is probably a familiar uh, part of the Scripture for you, but Jesus is walking with His disciples out on the road. They're heading to Capernaum. And when they reached the house, Jesus asked them, what was it that you two were arguing back out, about back there? Um, the verses say that they're too embarrassed to own up to it. They just kind of hang their head. But the narrator chimes in and says that the two were going back and forth on who is the greatest among them. And I found that to be pretty stereotypical. You get a bunch of dudes together in one place, and inevitably they're going to start arguing about who's the alpha male and that's just what they were doing. Who is the greatest among us? And how does Jesus respond? He says, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. I like that. He makes his point even clearer because he pulls a child over that's among them there. He sits the child on his lap. He says, to the extent that you welcome and make room, even for a child, who was at the, the lowest rung on the social pecking order in those days. If you make room and welcome one of these, you make room and welcome me as well. The last shall be first. Don't we always seem to be in competition with one another? Who is the greatest? You know, we look at our social media feeds, that can attest to that. Our political landscape certainly makes a case for that these days. And yet Jesus here is turning the whole system on its head. How do you get to the top? How do you earn first place in life? How do you please the living God? You do it by becoming the best servant of all. And we would do well to have in mind Mark 8 to keep us from what I call king of the mountain mentality. I remember playing this game as a kid. I don't know if you did this. Um, my childhood was rather violent, so that <laughs> the, game, the game fit very well. Um, the goal is just to get to the top of the mountain, or in our case, it was a hill. Um, no matter how you had to do it, whoever does it first wins. If you have to kick people down, throw them off the mountain, whatever you have to do, whoever's standing at the top is the king or queen. And Mark 9 helps me remember that it's people that's most important in life. That's really what Jesus was saying. It's not my goals or my agendas or my ambitions. And I catch myself being selfish sometimes in that way, and I need to remember that it's, it's people. That's God's greatest resource. And Jesus says, get to the top by hanging out at the bottom. I also try to keep in mind John 8. I think it's one of the most striking and even mysterious acts of Jesus. You probably remember this one. The Pharisees drag a woman and they toss her in front of Jesus. And the scene escalates so quickly as the mob surrounds her ready to stone her to death. It, it reeks of this patriarchy, this androcentric display of, of power and testosterone and status. And, and they want to trap Jesus to see if he will follow the law because the law says that if a woman is called in adultery that it is your right to stone her to death 
And they were more than willing and ready to do that with stones in hand. And as this whole scene is about to erupt in just this chaotic violence, Jesus diffuses the situation. He creates a distraction. He creates this diversion. And he infuses the moment with a sort of gentleness and calm. Do you remember how he does it? He kneels down in the dirt and mysteriously scribbles something that changes the whole mood. And as I was thinking about just what that scene would have been like, this week I was thinking about Psalm 23, the gentle shepherd who prepares a table in the presence of our enemies. Jesus was down there preparing a table for this woman in the presence of her enemies. And then he stands up and says to the men, let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. And he's leveling the playing field here. I think about maybe this doodling in the dirt is just to remind this angry mob that it's from dust that we all come and to dust we all return. But whatever it was that he was doing, he humanized her. He treated her not as an object or a lesson to be made in front of these people, but he treated her as God's beloved with a story. Yes, with a, with a troubled past, but also with a hopeful future. And as he confronted the men, one by one, the stones fell from their hands, and these men were turned away. Isn't that a beautiful image of Jesus? I keep it in mind these days to help me from defaulting into judge and jury mentality. It's as if God has tasked me with objectively deciding what is or isn't sin in someone's life such that they become my personal morality project. You know this line of thinking? I hear it all the time. And we can be so quick to fall into it. I thought about how in another place Jesus cautions us. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly the speck and take it out of your neighbor's eye. It reminds us to have perspective. And when we find ourselves being too quick to label and judge people, we would do well to keep in mind John 8. So these are my top three. Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son and God's wild and risky grace without exception. And Mark 9, Jesus' reminder to be as a child and that to be first, we must be servant of all. And John 8, remembering that as the beloved of God, we stand before no accusers. That God isn't some far-off judge ready to pronounce something over our life other than a hopeful future. And there are certainly other passages, and even as I was just kind of ruminating on these three, just a lot were just popping into mind thinking there's no way that a hateful ideology like Christian nationalism could support these beloved, these beautiful scenes of what Christ brings, the richness that these scenes bring. In a moment, as I pray, the worship team will come up and lead us in some more singing, and I think you should be really encouraged by this group. We have an amazing team. Uh, they lead each and every week, but they're also people that get this. As we've been talking about this, they're on board. They're just as committed as I am to present a vision of Jesus that will always lead to life and away from shame and guilt and fear.
But like most things, it really is a choice. It's a recommitment. And thinking about that in my own life, to recommit myself to this vision of life-giving um, narrative from Jesus, I thought about Moses' parting words to the people of Israel. They're about to cross over into Canaan. They have been journeying all those years through the desert. But their leader is on his deathbed and was not going to be able to make the final journey with them into the promised land. And so like a wise parent, he says to them, See, I have set before you ways of life and death. Choose life. The good life is a choice, and it must be chosen daily, or else we will default to Christianity that looks nothing like the ways of Christ. So I say to you, River Church, set before us our ways of life and ways that will lead to destruction. So what is it that we will choose? Let's pray together. God of wild and risky grace, God who showed us that it is through being a servant that we get to the top, God who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Be the vision which forms our faith in this time. We are faced with so many choices. Help us to choose what leads to life again and again and again. May the liberating values of your kingdom sway our decision-making here at the river that it would define even our worship. In this we pray in the name of Christ, who is always and forever for us. Amen and amen. Amen. Let's respond.